Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Long ago and far away, Jan Hatzius made his name at Goldman Sachs with a strange phrase called mortgage equity withdrawal. He brought market economics to a complete standstill by figuring out the flows of our housing market long ago and far away in a boom. He is the Goldman Sachs chief economist and head of global economics. Jan, we're riveted on the Fed meeting today. John's going to go to that. But I need to go to you on this boom economy you and I have never seen. How does a boom economy, how do you perceive that Goldman Sachs, that 8% GDP fades away? Will it be abrupt or will it be far more gradual and prosperous than we can imagine? I mean, the 8% forecast is for the fourth quarter, the fourth quarter number in 2021. And that's the, the way the Fed looks at these numbers as well. We think they'll obviously upgrade their forecasts sharply as well. We don't think as high as that, maybe a little bit over six. But in our forecast, 2021, very rapid recovery, as you say. We've, uh, we've never seen these kinds of growth rates. But then afterwards, I think the economy is going to be much closer to full employment by late this year, early next year. And so in 2022-23, we will see you know, meaningful deceleration. Think you know, maybe three instead of eight on a, on a Q4 to Q4 basis next year, uh, but with an unemployment rate that's then below 4% in our forecast. And employment rates that have mostly recovered the, the big slump. Well, just to build on what Tom is talking about, this idea of a faster and hotter boom, but a much quicker cycle that Andrew Sheets of Morgan Stanley was talking about earlier on the show. What is the anatomy of an economy like that, given the fact that markets and frankly, economies often don't move in straight lines, that there can be accelerations and there can be busts, especially with how high asset prices are? I mean, what do you foresee over the next few years as we get back to this lowflation normal? Well, I think we'll see a yeah, very front-loaded recovery and then something that's more similar to the growth rates that we had pre- pre-pandemic with potential growth in the 2% range, maybe a little bit below 2%. But that's not really the constraint at the moment because we still have a lot of spare capacity in the, in the economy. There could be future shocks, of course, post-pandemic. There will be future shocks post-pandemic, but I think in the near term, it's really about making up the lost ground from the from, from the shock of 2020. And I think we're well positioned for that. So, Jan, let's have a clinic approaching this conversation a little bit later today. The decision, the summary of economic projections, the news conference as well. Are you forecasting above target inflation then, above 2% at least, in the next three years at some point in this SEP that comes out a little bit later? Yes, we do expect the 2023 number for core PCE to go up a tenth. They're currently, as of December, showing 2.0. We think that probably goes to 2.1%, could even go to 2.2%. But I'd be very surprised if it stayed at 2. I think they will show something above the medium-term target. And that, I think, is then also going to be a reason to show one hike 
by the end of 2023. Again, I'm focusing on the median projection here. And of course, it's going to be a range of different views that will take some time to, you know, figure out exactly what it means. But I think the first in the first instance, markets are going to be focused on the medians. So core PCE at the 2122 for 2023. The median dot comes up one, one hike for 2023. Then the news conference, Jan. How do you think the chairman shapes the narrative coming off the back of those forecasts? I mean, I don't think that the story from from Powell is going to be all that different from, you know, what he said a couple of weeks ago in the in, in the in the Wall Street Journal interview, where he basically didn't want to provide calendar guidance for either tapering or rate hikes because the committee has decided to to phrase all this in outcome-based terms. But he did use quite a lot of calendar-like language about tapering. He said, "Patient." He said sometime, he said that there would be plenty of notice before they would start to taper. So to me, that says, you know, tapering in the next couple of quarters, very unlikely. Late this year is a possibility, but our best guess would be early 2022. What would you have to see, Jan, to change your forecast for longer-term inflation at a time when you've got the likes of Ray Dalio coming out and saying uh, that cash is trash and that longer-term bonds are going to be worthless in the face of accelerating inflation? Well, I think there are a number of things to, to watch. So our baseline scenario is that inflation goes up substantially in the, in the short term. That's driven by lapping the big declines of early 2000 and and 20, we, go, we get to 2.3% for core PCE in April. Then it comes back down. And then after that, you see sort of a, a gradual acceleration, a little above 2% by 2023, and then somewhere in the two and a quarter percent range beyond that, maybe a little bit above. So relative to that sort of baseline scenario, if you had you know, a sharp increase in inflation expectations, that would certainly be a warning sign probably something that would have to be visible in a number of indicators, not just break-evens in the bond market or, 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 or household expectations, but, but a combination of that. You'd certainly be focused on that. If you had a really big overheating of the economy with you know, employment rates that are far beyond the sort of cyclical highs that we've seen in the, in the past couple of decades, yeah, I think then you'd be more worried about bigger wage price spirals. Right. In our forecast, we basically see the sizable current output gap, the slack in the economy being filled in. And maybe exactly. we get a little bit beyond normal, but not dramatically. But if that turned right. out to be wrong, then obviously we'd have oh, to yeah, reconsider. You're, re- you're reading my mind exactly. And this goes back to the hallmark work of Dudley McKelvey, you and the rest of the Goldman Sachs team. Is there a complete underestimation of the elasticity of supplies coming on? You get a boom economy, the animal spirits pick up, the output cap closes up, and that's a good and normal thing, right? Yes, absolutely. That's a good and normal thing. And there can be too much of a good thing, of course. That's a, that's always a possibility you have to consider. In our forecast, it doesn't, it's not too much of a good thing. It's, it is a good thing. Uh, but I also think you make a good point about the potential for supply to, you know, prove to be a little bit stronger than people yes. have perhaps built in. I think that's a good point as well. And so far, the supply side information that we've gotten during the pandemic has been, I think, better than than most people would have expected a year ago or nine months ago. 
Yeah, we've got to squeeze one more in for Chairman Powell in this news conference for you. How Michael McKee out? A question for the chairman. What is it right now? Top of the mind for the team at Goldman. I think asking about the you know threshold for 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 rate hikes in terms of you know where core PCE inflation is, I think that is going to be the biggest question. So people of course are focused on the on the dot plot per se, but but even more so perhaps on where rate hikes are as a function of where the where the inflation numbers are. So, for example, if you had 2.0 for core PCE and a hike, that would be viewed as very hawkish. If you had 2.2 or 2.3 percent for core PCE and a hike, that would actually be uh, pretty dovish. And so, I, I think getting into that. Yeah, that relationship yeah. I think is going to be important. John, what's so important here again is I've got to get the hotsiest look going. I mean, I'm working on do it this right again. now. You want to do this again? You think John the, it works? The no tie thing. It's the great no for radio. Tie. Here's the problem I've got. If I take it my tie off now, I've got to put it back on. Young, great to catch up. We won't do it again. Jan Hatsius, a good John, Sachs, thank you. chief Brilliant. economist and head. Of John, Global there's economics. some important stuff there. We decided a number of days ago that our team would go out and get the best voices we can. Jan Hatzius will join us here in a bit as we move forward to the Fed show at 2 p.m. this afternoon. We start strong or strongest with Glenn Hubbard of Columbia University to say as professor of economics, former Council of Economic Advisors chairman, doesn't do credit to what he did at the Columbia Business School uh, is his, uh, his tenure uh, there as well. He is the most articulate supply-side conservative out there, and we start strong with Glenn Hubbard. Dean Hubbard, I'm thrilled to have you on the show to talk about the assumption that growth will save us. Your laureate colleague, Joe Stiglitz, would say, over time, over the years, we can grow our way out of a five standard deviation deficit. Does that math work? Well, it really doesn't for two reasons. We will grow very rapidly this year, six plus percent. That's a challenge for the Fed to change its own forecast. Going forward with the fiscal impulse reversed, we're back to more normal rates of growth. Second point, a lot of our problems in fiscal policy are in programs that just grow on autopilot, so-called entitlement <laughs> programs. Growth alone doesn't save you there. We mm -hmm. are going to have to have some kind of fiscal consolidation in spending, in taxes, or dare I say it, inflation. Uh, Glenn Hubbard, I remember in August Thursday of 2007 where we all looked at four standard deviation, three-month T-bill, four standard deviation LIBOR. We're way out over that. We're out to a medical chart of moving on our fiscal policy. Does it signal crisis that we're out near six standard deviations on deficit to GDP? I don't think it signals a crisis, but I think it signals a warning. It's not a crisis to the extent this is largely one-time borrowing, although even there it needs to be smart, which I can't entirely say for what, we, what we've just done. Going forward, though, we have to have a more sustainable fiscal policy, and that requires taking a hard look at promises we're making. For example, many promises being made in the American Rescue Plan Act aren't paid for going forward. We have to ask, what are we going to do about it? All right. In a recent Washington Post article that you wrote with Alan Blinder, you said there are good reasons for running large deficits now. As long as the spending is well targeted, I get the sense that you have some criticisms about what was just passed, the $1.9 trillion stimulus. What in there is targeted, do you think is appropriate, and what do you think is not? 
Well, I think a smaller bill probably would have done the trick. And by the trick, I mean making sure we've shored up unemployment insurance, um, modest aid to states, aid to businesses for continuity. Those sorts of things make sense to me. Writing checks to people who didn't lose their jobs and whose wages didn't go down is, is hardly targeting, and it risks ruining firepower for later. And of course, part of what's in the bill has little to do with the pandemic and is a set of social policies. And they may be good, they may be bad, but they're not really part of a stimulus bill. Limiting firepower for later, are you talking about possibly the Fed's hand being forced with higher inflation than expected? Or are you talking about it sucking the oxygen out of Washington, D.C. for infrastructure spending and other initiatives? I'm talking more the latter. I don't expect the Fed, there will be a transitory burst in inflation. I don't expect the Fed to confront an inflation crisis as a result of this. I think it's a warning and communication is important. But I do think it puts at risk other fiscal agendas President Biden might have, whether it's physical infrastructure, whether it's training initiatives to help workers prepare for a new economy. All of that could be put at risk because of overdoing it here. Glenn, pre-pandemic, we lived in a world that was very, very shallow growth, and it was a very extended cycle as well. Low trend growth, low inflation, certainly not the kind of inflation to worry about. Is there anything in this bill that really disrupts the existing trend before the pandemic, coming out of the pandemic? I don't think so much about this bill, but I do think we could be on the verge of much better productivity growth going forward, which would presage uh, a better growth rate. The risk in this bill and what follows on is that a combination of excessive spending in some areas and tax increases to pay for it limit that growth. I think that's the risk we're going to hear about in the next couple of years. The reason I ask this, Glenn, is because the last cycle was so long and so shallow. And I'm trying to understand, as we move through this one really quickly, particularly in financial markets, and if we see that snapback just as fast, whether we need to be prepared for short cycles again and maybe look past the history of the last 10 years and look to what came before. Well, I think a lot will depend on how policy responses develop. So after the global financial crisis, we did have a fairly sluggish and eventually large policy response, but it didn't really reset business people's expectations. It was a fairly anti-business regulatory and tax agenda. And so the question is, will we do that again? I hope not, and I don't necessarily think so. I think President Biden has a somewhat different agenda, but we'll have to see. Glenn Hubbard, can we close the inequality that we have? Can we close the pandemic-induced inequality given modern technology? This is something you did at the business school. You led on this for years. We completely understand the tech, not understand the technological impulse right now. Are we asking for too much from our authorities to close the inequality gap? No, I don't think we are. I don't think we can, quote, close it, but I think we can start by asking a big question. Given the technological changes, you put it, and also globalization have disadvantaged some kinds of workers while they've advantaged most of the rest of us, what can we do about that? If I were President Biden thinking about, quote, infrastructure, I would think about preparing people. So that would be focusing on community colleges, focusing on distressed communities in a meaningful way, that, to me, is preparation to compete. That's what Adam Smith calls. 
All right, Glenn, uh, just to wrap this all together, the underlying fear in markets, the underlying debate is really on inflation. And you touched on this earlier where you said that you do see this more as a transitory phase, or at least that that's how the Fed will look at it. What would you see or what would you have to see to shift your opinion to say this time really is different in terms of a new inflationary regime where suddenly prices start going up at a substantially faster clip for a prolonged period? Well, I think exactly as you said, you'd need to see working its way through the system, the sustained price increases at all levels and wage pressures to follow it. What I'm more worried about in the near term is a spillover into financial fraud, into markets more than uh, goods prices and services prices getting out of hand. Glenn, always great to catch up, sir. Appreciate My your pleasure. time. Thanks for being with us. Glenn Herbert there, the former Council of Economic Advisors chairman and, of course, Columbia University professor of economics. Andrew Sheets joins us now, Morgan Stanley, Chief Cross-Asset Strategist. That's not where we'll start, Andrew. <laughs> We're going to start with a cycle because you guys have put out a note in the last 24 hours that I touched on with Mike Wilson, your colleague, yesterday. And I think it's really, really important to understand that you are already talking about mid-cycle dynamics in this market before this economy has even reopened and gotten started. Yeah, thanks. Well, well good morning, um, uh, everyone. And, and I think that's a really important theme. Obviously, there are some near-term events, key events today that are going on that matter a lot for the market. But we do think it's important to step back and think about this cycle. And I do think there are a lot of reasons why this cycle could burn hotter, but because of that also burn shorter. And that's a key theme from us at Morgan Stanley. That's what, what my colleague Michael Wilson was talking about the other day. And I think that means that, you know, the market might have to transition from early cycle trades and investment strategies to mid-cycle or even late-cycle strategies much faster than one would have done in kind of past, mm -hmm. past market cycles. Andrew, do you agree with me that the heart of the matter to the take it to the House of Gorman is the calculation by Ellen Zentner of when and how the GDP fade occurs? That's really the first order condition here, isn't it? Well, I, I, I do. And, and I, I also think, you know, to a point you guys were mentioning earlier, I, I think there is a lot of unprecedented um, uh, elements of this, right? I think you have, in some ways, a really unique demand and supply shock happening together, right? If, I think, if we think about that demand curve, uh, you have a record high savings rate. You've had a record amount of fiscal stimulus put into the economy in the form of, of checks and other uh, other transfers. And then you have a lot of people who, for the first time, will be able to consume goods and services that they have not been able to consume before and might be more more willing, might be less price sensitive to doing that. So, you know, Ellen is forecasting, has an above consensus kind of 8.1% growth number for uh, for for this year. Um, you know, we, we so we're, we're very optimistic around the U.S. growth outlook. But but indeed, I think some of the question for the out years is is does that start to come does that start to come back? And then also, I think for companies, you know, a, a very normal mid cycle dynamic is that as the cycle progresses, some sometimes you get margin pressure. These costs that come through with the economic expansion start to hit the bottom line. And so, whereas early in the cycle, things like small caps do very very well because they have very strong operating leverage, they start to do less well as the cycle progresses because of some of those cost pressures. Andrew, this is a fantastic explanation of how we could see that incredible growth that you're calling for, that Goldman Sachs is calling for, while also not seeing long-term inflation pick up. When you say burn hotter but burn shorter, there is a question 
When do treasuries, 10-year treasuries, become a buy because of the expectations to this reversion to a slow growth world or perhaps even a downturn on the heels of this very fast uh, and very hot expansion? Yeah, no, I, I think that's absolutely the right question. So, so at the moment, you know, our, our asset allocation is, is still underweight duration. That being said, our, our interest rate strategists, you know, are forecasting the U.S. 10-year to end the year at, at 1.7%. So we're, we're very close to that number. So I, I certainly think it's, it's the right question to ask. And, and as the yield curve is steepened, the, the carry, the, um, the economics of holding treasuries is getting a lot better. So, you know, I, I do think there are some important things to watch. Obviously, what we get today and, and what we get out of um, uh, this question around uh, the SLR exemption is, I think, important. But also, I think stepping back, I mean, to me, one of the most fascinating charts is uh, in, in the entire market is what the break-even expectation curve looks like. And at the moment, you know, that is the Fed could not ask for a better set of break-even expectations, inflation expectations, right? They're, they're high over the next five years, but then they're lower over the next 10 years. They're lower over yeah. the next 30. So that is not telling the story of inflation run out of control. And, and I think that's important for the bond, you know, for the bond buying story, because I think, you know, essential to kind of bonds being a buy for some of those, those yield curve dynamics to come into play yeah. is the idea that we're not going to get something to run out of control. I think certainly at the moment, the inflation curve is still forecasting. That. Andrew, we've got to go to this. John Farrell mentioned it earlier. I mean, I look at the heritage of John Randolph and Brown Ultimate Frisbee. Andrew, did you do a Brown Ultimate when you were there? I, I did. I, uh, I'm, uh, I'm happy, happy to say I did. Very good. Andrew Sheets, thank you so much. Andrew, thank you. All-American. Brown, Appreciate Texas it. was a really important match. Andrew job. Sheets, Morgan Stanley, Chief <laughs> Cross Asset. No. Strategist. No. Right now on this Fed Day, we get perspective from a former governor of the Federal Reserve System, Randall Krosner, at the Chicago Booth School. And he is steeped in the history of Chicago from Knight to Stigler on to Milton Friedman and all of the good work of the modern age. Randy, we have fought a pandemic war. Out of World War II, we had 14% inflation in 1947. All of a sudden, 1% inflation five, six years later in 1953. The inflation of Truman, can it be the inflation of Powell where we get back to normal quicker than we think? Well, I do think that uh, we are going to be seeing some inflationary pressure. Uh, we certainly see um, a very, very strong, extraordinarily strong uh, fiscal stimulus and, and obviously um, a lot of support from the, the Fed. Are, are we going to see numbers anywhere close to what you just quoted uh, uh, on the high side? I don't think so. But right. I do see uh, a boost up. Well, we see a boost up in inflation, and there's this god-awful fear, it's the 60s and 70s inflation, of a sustained inflation. What is that likelihood? Well, this is, uh, this is the thing where we, uh, we don't know. Um, it, we're in the unusual situation where the, the central bank is trying to push up inflation expectations and push up inflation in this context of now a, a, a potential for a strong boom in the economy with the, the fiscal stimulus. The question is, could inflation expectations become unanchored? The Fed has been trying to move them up to two. They've been persistently below two for the last decade. But when you start moving them up, they continue to move up. And that's the uncertainty. So much uncertainty right now, Randy. And I want to touch on your experience at the Federal Reserve as well. Do you think it's the correct approach to take the lessons learned from the previous crisis and apply them to this crisis? 
Well, um, there are some things that are similar and some things that are different. So I think some of the lessons that the Fed learned is it's incredibly important to provide liquidity. So when I was there, we created all these, you know, we did the large scale asset purchases and all the, uh, the lending programs. The Fed immediately stood those up about a year ago, and it's actually almost a, exactly a year ago, uh, and uh, provided that to the treasury markets were functioning, make sure that we were avoiding a financial meltdown. That's extremely important. What's new is that um, uh, this, the extent of the fiscal stimulus and that the, um, the restriction on, on consumption was really policy induced um, because of all the restrictions associated with the pandemic. When those come off and combined with the fiscal stimulus, this is really something we haven't seen before. So the reason I raise this, Randy, is because, as you know, your former colleagues have been conditioned by the previous cycle to believe they need to run this hotter. And I'm just wondering whether you think they'll be surprised by how quickly things snap back. Well, exactly. It's, uh, th that's why this is something that's unusual to have a consumption being pent up because policy choices have made people stay home um, and uh, because of uh, concerns about uh, infection with the rollout of the vaccine, uh, with people feeling more comfortable go out, with policy uh, restrictions being relaxed, plus an unprecedented stimulus, it couldn't snap back quite quickly. Professor, there's also a concern that the Fed's policy of holding uh, monetary conditions so easy do threaten financial stability over the near and, frankly, over the longer term. This idea that asset price inflation is very real and very hot. At what point does this pose a financial stability risk that the Fed really cannot ignore? So I think this is something that, um, that they're thinking about but is not the main thing that they're focusing on right now. They're, they're really focusing on making sure that we do have a firm foundation for recovery. The last thing that the um, uh, uh, Chairman Powell wants to do is to, uh, to sort of uh, spook the markets and have financial conditions tighten dramatically, have the, uh, the, the markets uh, turn south before we actually see the, the, the boom coming. Think uh, They say, well, if we have a boom, then we'll deal with it. Um, that could be a very good approach, but it could also be one where you're taking a lot of risk for inflation expectations to get out of control. Randy, tell me about the multipliers. I mean, it's not the microeconomics of Chicago, but we can go there. Do we have any understanding of the multipliers of consumption and the rest of the equation, or is that truly a mystery at this unique time? Well, I think there is a lot of uncertainty about them. I mean, people make very strong assertions. Uh, about what so-called multipliers are. That is, when the government spends a dollar, how much does that turn into additional GDP? Um, but again, we don't have a lot of experience with this type of, uh, uh, this type of condition where you're poised for uh, potentially very big uh, consumption as well as production boom. Randy, we've got to leave it there. Randy Krosner there, University of Chicago, Booth School of Business Professor of Economics. Thank you, sir. We had an historic conversation yesterday with Amesh Adalja. He was scathing on the European vaccine response. We go American today with Lauren Sauer, with John Hopkins as well, Associate Professor of Emergency Medicine. Lauren, I see a lot of percolation that as we open up society, we may quote unquote plateau in our statistics. Is that fear valid? 
I think that theory is valid. I think the key is to open up safely. Exactly, you know, the, those words are so important, right? We still want to use all of those tools that we've been developing over the last year in fighting this pandemic. So when we're reopening businesses, can we do it safely with good practices about distancing between um, patrons? Can we continue to use masks? Can we continue to reinforce those face covering requirements, even if we're reopening bars, restaurants, other businesses in society? and especially in schools. Yesterday, Mayor de Blasio of New York City came out and said it's really unfortunate that cities aren't receiving vaccines directly from the federal government, that it has to go through the state. Yes, this has to do with the tiff between Andrew Cuomo and Mayor de Blasio, and yet this also does highlight a key question. Should cities be getting the vaccine directly? Should we be getting a better distribution mechanism from the federal government? Yeah, I think this is a challenge, not just with the vaccine distribution. We saw it with testing. We've seen it with a lot of the other um, healthcare activities associated with this pandemic and healthcare more broadly in the U.S. We do not have a federal system for healthcare. We have a disaggregated healthcare system. It makes national strategies for anything really challenging. Um, and we're seeing that play out in real time. And it, it'll only be exacerbated in an emergency, right? Because you have to make rapid decisions. You have to rapidly distribute. But you still have to use these existing chains, these existing pipelines. And so if you want to get vaccine into the hands of the community that has the greatest need and can um, and knows how to work with that community to access them, absolutely go through these processes. But um, the way our healthcare system is set up, there are these sort of chains and pipelines that slow things down. Lauren, let's talk about slowing things down right now. The president says May 1st to open up eligibility to all adults. Here's what Montana's got to say April 1st. Ohio, similar story. End of the month. Every other state that watches this happen, and I can tell you living here in New York, when I look to Montana at the end of the month and Ohio and start to see eligibility wide open for 16 plus, I'm going to be asking the governor here in New York the same thing everybody will be asking. Why can't we do the same thing? What is going on? What is stopping places like New York and others just to do the same thing now? Open up eligibility. Yeah, I think there's a couple challenges, right? So part of it is the access. How do you make sure that you're getting to those most vulnerable communities? And that goes back to what we were just talking about. Do these states that are that are moving up that timeline, do they know how to access their vulnerable populations quicker? Or are they just moving on because they have sort of not been able to access those communities and they want to get vaccine more broadly? These disparate decisions about how we administer vaccine and how we interpret the ACIP guidelines um, are, are what's leading to these changing dates um, depending on where you are. So it also can lead to sort of vaccine shopping, which I think we're seeing a little bit in places, especially in um, more well-to-do places where people have better access because they have multiple residencies or they meet requirements in one area and not in another and they can relocate to access those vaccines. So I think that that May 1st deadline or timeline is ex exciting and it's reasonable and I think we can get there, but we really have to focus on making sure that in communities where access is hard or where we're not getting at those most vulnerable, um, hard to reach communities and populations, that that's where we target to make sure that we are protecting those who need that safety net so much more. Lauren, in some ways, these are details, especially when you look at the scene in Europe uh, where they're struggling to get even a relatively uh, significant portion of the uh, population vaccinated. Angela Merkel's advisor said today that the biggest economic risk is a third wave of the virus. In the United States, based on the vaccination schedule and that May 1st pledge, is the, the threat of a third wave off the table? 
I wouldn't say it's off the table. I think we are definitely in a better place. Um, and some would say we're in a much better place than um, we thought we would be. And especially as we started seeing the B117 variant enter into the U.S., um, we're still seeing increase in cases in that variant. And I think there's a lot of questions about what will happen in the numbers as these rapid reopenings change in places like Texas, for example. Um, but right now, the numbers are still looking good. Um, and I think the key is to hold on to those measures that we have worked so hard to implement that we know work as we expand vaccination coverage. Um, we're doing a, a great job, I think, in, in getting the numbers of vaccine, vaccinees up. Um, and now the key is to do those targeted areas that have lower vaccination rates um, to keep those overall numbers across the country down. Lauren, always appreciate your time. Thanks for being with us early this morning. Lauren Sander, Johns Hopkins Associate Professor of Emergency Medicine. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.